Welcome to Finance Feeds Podcasts. Finance Feeds is the world's premier interactive Forex industry news source, providing the latest insights and current affairs from within the online trading industry worldwide. Enjoy our latest podcast episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Finance Feeds podcast. Uh, my name is Nikolai Saev. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Finance Feeds. It's episode six of our podcast. Uh, today, we have joining us uh, Tom Higgins, who's uh, founder and CEO of Goldeye. Tom, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much, Nikolai. It's very, very lovely to be on your show. Likewise, um, we actually see each other uh, or have seen each other quite a bit, I think, um, over the years at numerous conferences, but I don't think we've actually ever formally met um, you and I. So uh, I'm glad that we have this opportunity today, <laughs> actually, to speak yes, with you. Uh, I'm sure uh, we have. We've, we've been to so many conferences together, haven't we? Yes. And um, the last time I think that I saw you was in June in Cyprus at the IFX Expo. And I wanted to find out um, how that conference was uh, for you on a business, on a, you know, from a business and personal uh, perspective, given that you have so much experience with, you know, all of these kind of conferences. Yeah, it's funny. Each conference in different parts of the world has a different sort of flavor and you get a sort of different thing out of them because I, I have been to I haven't counted actually numbers, but it must be sort of 50 or 60, maybe even 100 conferences um, around the world. And they all have a different sort of angle. And Cyprus is a real gathering of the entire industry. So everybody gets together. So you don't come along with someone who says, here is a contract I want to, I want to sign with you to buy something now. Mm -hmm. It's more about continuing conversations you've been having beforehand, rekindling conversations, seeing people you haven't seen for a while, catching up. And it sort of is like a catalyst to to starting conversations later on. And it was very much that way this time. It was great seeing people. We were busy the whole time. Um, really, really nice to see so many, so many other people from the industry we haven't seen for ages because of all of the COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Um, I'm glad that uh, um, I'm glad that it was productive uh, for you. It was definitely quite productive and hectic for for us at Finance Feeds. Uh, uh, at that show as well. Um, so listen, summer came and went quickly this year. It's September already. Um, I'm wondering how did you spend your time? Did you have a chance to enjoy some leisurely activities this summer or was it all work, work, work? No, it was, uh, it was pretty good actually. I mean, it's, it is work all the time. Um, when you own your own business, you never really sort of stop, but, um, you know, we've got four children, two dogs, two cats and six chickens. So, um, we're pretty busy. Um, we we had a nice holiday in Cornwall at the beginning of the summer, and we've just come back from a week in Mykonos um, mm -hmm. with our teenage children who wanted to go and do more of the sort of clubbing type stuff and a bit of last minute <laughs> sunshine. So that that was that was nice, but it was a uh, that was pretty hectic actually. That was pretty busy in Mykonos. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like it's hectic, uh, hectic on all fronts <laughs> with chickens and and um, and uh, kids and all that. Well, the chickens are the, probably the easiest of all of them, actually. <laughs> I see. Um, I didn't know that you had chickens. I would have thrown in a, 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 a question in, into our uh, into our session today about <laughs> you know these types of things. The, the, these types of things are quite popular where I live um, in upstate New York, so not in right. you know New York City proper, but uh, more um, more away from the city. And you know, my neighbors have a chicken coop with all kinds of different. Um, birds and animals in there as well so I'm a little bit familiar with with uh with uh, uh with with these kind of activities the chicken um, ones, yeah 
Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk shop and speak a little bit about Goldeye. Um, so your company has been around for, for uh, I think, over four, or 13 years, pioneering trading technology for retail FX firms, liquidity providers, and um, lately crypto firms. Uh, I wanted to find out what are you guys focusing on these days in terms of innovations uh, or improvements that come out of your discussions, uh, you know, specifically with your clients. Uh, for example, what are your clients asking for, seeking these days in terms of like liquidity, risk management, uh, data services, you know, all of the things that you provide through the so-called growth suite? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, yes, we, we're just about to celebrate our 14th birthday, which is it's incredible because it's the it's it's gone so quickly um and every time you think you have a period of stability something happens in the world that changes everything um so you've just you've just got to sort of um i sort of learned never to be complacent and never accept good times because you know that if there's a good time there's something bad coming after so just always be a bit prepared and just be careful so um what what we've learned over the last couple of years is um the retail FX market is um, was growing at a very high rate of years ago. It's it's sort of stabilized and flattened out and is now, um, you're not seeing new brokers created all the time. You're seeing some brokers disappear, some new brokers created. And the, the, the general focus is on um, efficiency, being able to do things uh, as cheaply as possible and do, th- do things very efficiently, get the best pricing and get the most reliable systems because there are, quite a lot of vendors out there now that there weren't before and there's quite a good choice and there's there's a lot of quite good people um mm. before there weren't so many um so we've really focused on listening to our clients and um putting in place the sort of things that they need so we talk to them about what what their pain points are um we sit with them to see for example on the the uh, risk management side we sit with them in the desk and see what they're looking at what <clears throat> what sort of information they need to be able to do their job efficiently and to be able to keep on top of dodgy trading, for example, things that are going on. Because as a retail broker, they're exposed to everybody. And sure. there's so many traders and so many trades, it's in, it's impossible for them to keep track of everything in their in their heads. I mean, when I started working in FX at a company called ODL Securities uh, about sort of 20 years ago, um, they used to write all the trades down on a piece of paper um, because there were it was, the market was that much smaller and then the piece of paper got bigger and bigger and bigger and turned into a spreadsheet. And then it became really obvious um, that this had to be automated because there was no way you could keep up with that sort of thing. So then systems came in play. And that's the, that's the time when I started Goldeye, when I realized there was a real demand for someone with business understanding, but also technical understanding to be able to automate the processes that they needed to make things more efficient. So I'd say that's probably the focus that we've seen over the last the last few years. Um, mm-hmm. Last year has been much more crypto focused. If you want to talk about that now, that's that's where we've seen a lot of interest because there's an awful lot of innovation um, has gone into that side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, that was actually going to be one of my next questions about your new project. It's called Crypto Switch, I believe, um, and it's focused specifically on crypto liquidity. Um, if you could tell us a few things about it. Yeah, so if we sort of if we go back about five years, um, we I I was always had an interest in in up and coming technology. It's it's always fascinated me, and I sort of tried to be a sort of head of the curve on it. And that means that you make quite a lot of mistakes and things that are not going to last and survive, and other mm-hmm. things 
you know will do so you've got you've got to shoot at quite a few different things to be able to get the right the right things and so i've always been i've always done that um and the crypto switch was an interesting angle because we we originally integrated with nine um of the very earliest exchanges and we did nine because we needed that number to be able to get a reliable feed because we found that they were so unreliable the very early exchanges um they you had such terrible latency terrible gaps in pricing they had no support available at all you couldn't talk to anyone at all they even had telephones um and so to be able to get a reliable central price you needed all these exchanges now these weren't this wasn't a tradable price this was an indicative price that we would feed in for people to be booked now that soon became clear that, that wasn't going to be good enough and so we then moved into our crypto switch 2 model um and what was different about that is we were working with market makers instead so we took the sort of the big market makers that had come from the institutional non-crypto world they'd spun off separate companies or separate divisions created entities using their in you know their their knowledge and expertise in fixed income markets for example or the equity markets to create pricing in in uh, in the crypto coins, um, and then they price into our central engine, um, and then we um, we aggregate all that together. We we create a custom um, laddered order book because if you're mixing different um, book depths from different people with different price levels, um, you can get a very skewed picture out. Um, so we do that sort of custom laddering in. It's, it's actually not such a problem in market making, but it's a real problem if you're mixing a retail exchange like Binance with a market maker like Jane Street or something, because the market maker might have 10 or 20 levels of depth, whereas Binance might have a thousand levels of depth. And so it becomes very difficult to to read the order book. If you want to buy 10 Bitcoin, for example, you need to go, you might end up doing three, 400 trades, which is not easy to track. True. So, um, so we sort of learned learned a few very specific things from there. So, Crypto Switch Two now is focused on bringing in the best of the liquidity from market makers and the large exchanges, mm-hmm. combining that together. Um, now, I should say we are not a venue; we are a platform. So, um, we are not the counterparty to any of the trades. We are sure. providing the technology to aggregate everything together, so that the the broker or fund or or, or other sometimes they call themselves exchanges and they're not. Um, the entity on the end consuming the liquidity is getting the um, the best possible price from the best possible options. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the the complications and the sort of wrinkles of the of the of this type of crypto market is if you've got ten or fifteen venues that you're using to execute against, um, you can't just have positions against all of them because it would be a settlement nightmare. It would be very very inefficient on cash as well. So much like in the prime broking world in, in, in FX, in the real institutional world, um, you need to have something that is going to centralize and um, net out that type of that trading so that you end up with one set of positions. And there's a number of different ways that you can achieve that. We have three ways that we do with that. We do that. So we work with zero hash to do daily net settlement. So mm-hmm. at the end of every single day, zero hash, a company in the, in the States, they work out net position between everybody and everyone else, and then they do the net cash movement so that everybody has paid the right people. Um, then you have FXCH, who is a clearinghouse. So we work um, with them on a number of our clients. And with them, it's slightly different because with a cleared model, it's the same as the equity clearing model or the futures clearing model. As mm-hmm. soon as you trade with a counterparty, your trade is novated so that it's actually against the clearinghouse. 
And in um in a blockchain world, there is no time gap between that trade and that novation. So immediately the trade is done, it is novated into the clearinghouse. So you never actually need uh, a trading contract with your market makers or your exchanges because you never trade with them. It's, mm-hmm. you know, your position is always against the clearinghouse. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting model because it's very efficient on cash usage because you only have one party that you are is your counterparty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you obviously have to have trust in the clearinghouse as the central counterparty um, in that model. And then the the third model that we're working with is is where you have it's they call themselves a prime broker. It's sort of a mixture between the FX world of a prime broker and a prime of prime because they are not just doing give ups, but they're actually providing credit as well. So it's uh, it's a sort of mix, um, and that I think is a particularly good model for quite a lot of clients because again, it's very capital efficient. Um, you need a very well capitalized entity who is the prime broker and we're working with hidden road partners on this um which is a you know a very very strong company to work with um and you know we're doing we're doing well on our client base across all of those three different models great um that sounds pretty exciting um well with respect to crypto i wanted to get your thoughts on you know recently it's been labeled the crypto winter right Uh, we have we see this um weakness in the price of crypto assets. Uh, we also see, uh, I guess, um, you know, interest in crypto assets or trading crypto assets kind of faded uh, for some time because of the uh, fall of prices in crypto assets. Uh, some people are labeling it the crypto winter. I ask all of my guests if they agree with that characterization. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, or do you think perhaps this th- this was something that was sort of inevitable to happen? Um I think you mentioned that in the beginning of our podcast, you're you're the type of person who, you know, if everything's going great, that means somewhere down the line, you know, things are not going to go so great and you have to prepare for it. Um, is this something that we should have expected, you know, from a, what I would argue is like a fairly young asset class? Um, well, if, if anybody thinks that there's something is growing astronomically every single day and that's going to continue forever, then, <laughs> then that's generally a Ponzi scheme and it will blow up at some point. So, um, I'm not saying crypto is a bond scheme. I'm just saying nothing is going to keep going up forever. Um, and if anybody plans on that happening, then I think they're mistaken because it doesn't work like that. Everything goes in cycles. Now, what I would say, and I do call it a crypto winter, but it's a sort of period of pausing and reflection because um, the last time this happened, it was a massive collapse because there was an in 2017 because there was very little institutional support of the market. So it collapsed to almost nothing. Um, this time, when we say it's collapsed, you know, it's just around about $20,000 on Bitcoin today. Mm-hmm. And that's considerably more than it was at its highest when it had, when, you know, before when it had collapsed. So it's, it's quite interesting that it has stayed around there and it's just sitting around there, bubbling around, and every now and again it pops up and down a bit and up and down a bit. Um, and that, I believe, is entirely due to the institutional involvement that is in there, which is which is supporting it. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing is um, a continued and probably increasing amount, I would say, of inbound leads for um, digital asset systems, so our crypto switch product for providing access to that liquidity, because this is the time when you want to be looking at the technology that's available, looking at the liquidity and planning, because we believe and our clients who are looking at this believe very firmly that the way that digital assets trade is superior to other things because of all of the blockchain technology 
um, the way that you can transact internationally, the way you can trace things. It's, it's a very, very efficient way of working um, and a reliable way of working. And so this is, this is here to stay. And this is um, a time when people are planning and working out what they're going to be doing going forward. So they're not all disappearing. Now, you have seen lower trading volumes because the trading volumes are almost directly proportional to the price of Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. the amount, as it gets high, people trade more because it's a smaller asset. So you do have that hype. But it is no longer driven by the retail trader as it was. You know, it was almost entirely driven by what you read in the papers. The retail people will all go one way or go the other way. That's different now because I think it's now about sort of over 65% is institutional trading rather than retail. So it's driven, it, the drivers in it are different so if you do have a big sort of retail backlash, it doesn't have the same effect that it had before. Yeah, of course. And um, I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned liquidity and you mentioned sort of the evolution of crypto switch, right? From sort of version one to version two to version three. I'm venturing to guess that this whole situation with respect to, um, you know, the correction that happened in the markets actually presents uh, some opportunities for, uh, improvement for you guys, right? In terms of all of the um, all of the things that you had described, I, I, you know, because you could see the the price movements that happened during the um, during the winter, quote unquote, right? Or as the prices were going down, and I, I'm guessing it gives you guys, uh, like you said, a, a point of reflection, but also um, time to actually think about like what's next, like what are we going to do next to improve this and really make this. Um, make this market or this asset class uh, make it advance and and make it on par with FX and and some of the other um, traditional sort of um, assets that we're all used to. Yeah, you'd sort of think that if it was if it was quieter in the market, then um, you'd have time to do all your development and you wouldn't have such big dev queues and it would all be a bit easier. But it doesn't seem to have worked out like that. We are <laughs> incredibly busy in development, um, like all of the partners we work with it's all it's all the same they say well i'm absolutely maxed out on dev for the next 10 years so i've just got to work out what not what i'm not going to do so that i can fit other things that i do i do want to do so no it's not gone quieter on that front but it has mm-hmm. allowed us to look at what is more important which is things like that um the customized laddering in the order book which other people don't have because mm-hmm. our clients have said, you know, if I'm mixing in Binance and a market maker and I'm putting it into my platform and I want to see on the screen and my GUI the order book, well, I can't show 2,000 levels of depth on the screen because I can't read it. Um, and if I've got an algo trading that, it, it's just too hard work. It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's too heavy on CPU processing to go down the book that much. So we've put a lot of work in really optimizing the the feeds from every single market maker and exchange and then bringing it down into into levels that the liquidity consumer wants to see. So they might want one Bitcoin, two Bitcoin, five Bitcoin, 10 Bitcoin, or some or whatever they want. They can mm-hmm. customize it. Um, and so things like that have come out um, that, that make it just much easier for them to consume. The other thing that is, I think, is a big driver is we don't believe that once it's regulated, the um, people that will trade it, so the funds, will be mm-hmm. using bespoke front ends. They will be using the platforms that they use now. If you're a fund and you've got a trading platform, you've got a, a PMS and an OMS and an EMS, you're not going to stick another platform in parallel with that 
mm-hmm. with another screen, another back office, another middle office to trade a new asset class just because it's a new asset class. Mm-hmm. If the regulation allows you, which it will, um, allows you to mix it in with your other asset classes, so you can trade some Bitcoin, you can trade some fixed income, and you can trade some equities and futures all together, um, then you will do that through the same platform. And then that where crypto switch comes in is just another execution point. So whilst mm-hmm. you, you'll send your equities out to maybe an exchange, you'll send your you'll have a crypto switch implementation to send your um, Bitcoin or whatever other coins you want to the most efficient place to execute. And it will then go through your own internal management systems and be displayed on the front end screens that your people are currently using. That's what I see. That's where I, why I feel that it's going because that's the most efficient way to do it. I've been in trading a very, very long time and started in the futures markets in the in the trading pits of life and the IPE. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we saw there was what was wanted was one consolidated trading platform that would source liquidity and assets from different places. So that's always been the Nirvana as a single platform that the front end sees with the complexity behind it to, to be able to route it to the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've heard from uh, industry executives and thought leaders is market data is actually playing a very big role as well. Um, you know, obviously, that may not specifically relate to crypto at this point. But in terms of traditional assets, and, and this idea of all asset, right, uh, whether, whether you're an institutional trading firm, or a retail broker, it seems like a lot of uh, a lot of companies are rushing to get any kind of asset that they can, any tradable asset that they can on a trading platform to uh, to offer to their re- either retail investors or basically, you know, even institutional investors um, these days, including crypto. And it's becoming ever more complex in, in terms of the the price data, the market data that's associated with it that is needed, right, um, to uh, make decisions, to, to do analysis and to trade. Um, it seems like there's the things are getting ever more complex in in the trading space. Yeah, they are. the The economics of each asset class is different as well, because in the in the equities and the futures world, you've got to pay the exchange for data, um, and but in the crypto world, you don't. Um, so it's a bit like the FX world where you don't pay for data. So I remember what's one of the things that when we have spoken to FX retail FX brokers in the past, and they say they want to add equities. So many of them have absolutely no idea that you can't just take an equity feed from an exchange or from Reuters or Refinitiv as they are now, mm-hmm. add it into your platform and trade against it. You have to pay a lot. And in <laughs> yeah, fact, yeah, yeah. it's frequently much more expensive to pay those fees than you're going to make from the trading. So there used to be an enormous amount of, of fraud, I would guess you'd call, where people were stealing prices from other places. Um, which we would just say, no, you just can't do that. It's just, you're <laughs> going to get caught, so don't do it. And yeah. when they catch you, they won't just say, oh, you know, I need to pay us money. The exchanges will go back five years and say, well, you've had access to this data for five years for your thousands of clients. You need to pay us millions of pounds. So, um, and I know that from working at exchanges, that they have huge departments that are responsible for making sure they get paid for data. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really big push for them. Yeah, so, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difference with the crypto stuff, that there is no fee for data. Every exchange you can connect to for free and get the public API to get a stream of pricing. So if you just want a stream of Binance's price um, and you've got some technologies to be able to implement with it, implement to it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly possible that at no cost. If you want to trade, it's a bit different. 
that you do have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Um, well, you actually earlier alluded to um, sort of how GoldEye came about. And I wanted to ask you um, about, uh, I saw that you have a you know broad a range of experience in the financial industry. Um, you, I think, you know, from New York, uh, NYSE, Reuters, ODL Securities. Um, is there something, you know, in terms of knowledge and experiences that, that you had at these uh, former employers, so to say, that gave you the impotence to launch a company of your own and that company being GoldEye? Yeah, I've always found that I thought some of the decisions that people made were sort of hurried and not really based on the right data and they weren't necessarily correct. And I thought, well, you know, when I was more junior, I thought, well, I, you know, I must be wrong because these people are senior. They must know what they're talking about. And then mm -hmm. as you sort of get a bit more experience, you realize, no, they probably don't always know what they're talking about. They probably just go through go through the minutes, decide what they're going to make a decision on and, and do it fairly quickly without sort of thinking through the consequences. So I always felt that I, you know, I was probably right on some things that I should have spoken up on before. Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult starting, certainly in the UK, it's very difficult starting a business because there isn't, there maybe is now, but there wasn't a mindset of starting your own business with a risk of failure because failure is very much seen as, as you know, a business not succeeding is seen as you have not, you have failed. So, and that mm -hmm. is bad. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the States, it's a different approach. You know, you've had four or five goes, they've gone bust, you start again, and that's not considered bad. You know, that's okay because you've tried things and one didn't work, another one didn't work, this one did work. Here it's a little bit different. You know, it was considered different. Now it's, it's there are more entrepreneurs, there are more times, there are, it is more opportunity to start things. Um, funding is different as well here. You know, it's much harder to get uh, VC funding in the UK. It certainly was almost impossible when I started. Mm -hmm. um than it was in the states um we we are not funded by anybody we are bootstrapped we have um we live on the um the money that we earn um mm -hmm. and we we don't have any debt or investment from anybody because that's the way we decided to go so um we are completely in control of what we want to do if we want to spend a whole lot of money and not a load of cash and not make any money we can do that if we want to invest <laughs> more in something we can do that Mm -hmm. We want to make lots of money, not employ more, we can do that too. So it is very nice to be able to be flexible and, and free like that. So I think I learned from sitting on various boards and various companies that the decisions people make are not always the best ones. And they sometimes it's their personality that means they're making that decision. They want, they want to be the person making the decision because they're a dominant character, but they're mm -hmm. not necessarily the best. I would say another thing that has been really important with me is always to employ people that are better than you. So um, uh -huh. why would I employ people um, and then do their job for them? Um, all the people that I employ beneath me in my management team are better than me um, because that's they're the experts in their particular fields. I'm mm -hmm. a, a generalist. I'm a, I'm a software developer by background, so I was a C, C++ programmer, but I don't do that anymore. It might be quite fun every now and again to have a play, but I don't. Um, but the experts that we have in that area, you know, really are experts. But I think it's, for me, it's nice the fact that I've come through that route so I can talk to the developers and I know I know what I'm talking about. Yep. But I can't go in and do the architectural design and look at the glasses and all the code um, and do a better job than they would do in any way. So always employ people that are better than you. Um, then you're going to get the best out of everybody. 
Mm -hmm. uh, just really quickly, I'm curious to know, why is venture capital funding so difficult to get in the UK? Is it regulatory restrictions? No, I think it's just cultural. I just, it's I just, just think it's just the, 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 the American culture is, is just different. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's opportunistic. You know, you just look at the way, the way the country developed, I think is very different as well. You know, um, sure. um, Britons went out and conquered the world, whereas you know, Americans all came together. They had to make it themselves because a long, long time ago, that's all there was. And so it's just, it's just developed in a different way. Um, anybody, anybody can be on top in the States. Um, there is no limits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it, we have class systems it's just it's just a different place understood yeah i understand i understand um and uh you know you had mentioned computer programming something that you had studied i saw that on your linkedin profile that i think you studied engineering at university and then you got an mba in finance later on um i always ask uh, my guests about uh what role education played in their lives and careers for example some of my previous guests you know, said that math and, and science and engineering was something that they were exposed to in school at an early age. And that kind of gave them, you know, it gave them sort of an early start to think about, well, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, the quintessential question. Um, and quite a few of them sort of, you know, it, it's, it started that path uh, from an early age for them, you know, through uh, lower education, higher education, whatever we may call it, right? Uh, just regular school, university, and so on. Uh, that played a role. Wondering kind of what, what your experience was like in the UK growing up. Yeah, I mean, I'd start, I was always fascinated by technology and sound equipment. And actually, I was a DJ. Uh, I had my own mobile disco, which was called the Thunderbolt Roadshow, um, wow. from the age of about 11 to mm -hmm. um, 17. Um, and we used to, I had a friend who had a van who was a couple of years older than me and we used to drive it around, um, in the latter years, earlier years, my parents used to drive me around and we used to do the local discos with all the lighting and we built all our own equipment, built our amplifiers mm -hmm. and got record decks. And you know, you actually, when you're being a DJ then, and you actually played records and rather than creating music, you were playing other people's music and it's a little bit different now being a DJ. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I was very interested in that. And I love because of all that, my interest in electronics, um, I always wanted to be an electronics engineer. Um, and so I didn't really look into what electronics engineers did. Um, <laughs> I got a place at King's College in University of London on the electronic engineering course, um, studied that, turned that into a four-year degree by spending a year in industry designing telephone systems and things like that. And by the end of it, I realized that I really didn't want to be an electronic engineer at all. Um, mm -hmm. and the bit that was interesting was on the last year, they brought in some digital electronics or computing um, onto the course, um, which was fairly new when we were designing, I designed a multi-processor system called a transputer, which, um, older people will know about, but other people weren't using a programming language called Occam, um, mm -hmm. which was a very early, uh, multi-processor type language, very difficult to use. And you had to really tell it how to multi-process rather than the system working out itself. Mm -hmm. But, um, that experience in that last year taught me that I really wanted to go into software. And so, um, when I went into work, I started at PA Consulting Group and they, um, I, I, the project I was on was at Life to implement the first trading platform, which was called um, APT, Automated Pit Trading. And there'll be a number of people who listen to this will have, will have heard of that platform. Mm -hmm. and it was like a video mm -hmm. game. So mm -hmm. you would choose who you traded with and you click on them and then like little arrows would shoot between the two of you and then you would trade. That then moved on to more of a model where you had like a picture of a pit and people would be around the pit and you'd put your bid and offers in 
and then um, it would match the two together. And then eventually that went and turned into what was Life Connect, which became an order matching system where you didn't see who was in the fit at all. In fact, you didn't see anybody, and it was just order book matching, which is a much more efficient, if not as pretty way of, of doing trading. So what I learned at university um, was probably the programming side of it and the logical side of things, because logic is incredibly important in software engineering, because it's not just about programming. It's all about architectural design, building mm-hmm. something that is supportable, scalable, saleable, manageable, that has log files that you can read, alerts that mean something to the person that's reading it in the middle of the night. So it's it's a much bigger thing. Um, I was at a, a company called the International Petroleum Exchange um, um, after PA. And um, what uh, I had a really good boss there, a chap called Mike O'Donnell, and he was really good because he said, you need to extend your education. And he'd done an MBA at... Um, I think it was Open University. And he said, well, why don't you look to find an uh, an MBA to do? Because it will really extend your knowledge of business. Um, and so I found one at Cass Business School, um, which was it was, um, it was in the Barbican. And I was working in London at the time. So two years. And at the end of the working day at about 6 p.m., I'd then walk across the Barbican. And then we had lectures from about 6.30 p.m. until 11.30 p.m. each day. And then weekends, it, it was... Um, uh, tutorials and working together on projects so that that was a really hard two years but we i did that before children um and it was really interesting because i don't think i learned any facts that i would use specifically but everything i learned in any of the subjects allowed me to understand how that worked so i knew nothing about marketing before mm-hmm. and having done the marketing courses i knew how to approach a marketing problem i knew how to talk to marketing people and i understood their language it was the same with the finance side, corporate finance side, HR, organizational skills, uh, across the board. Everything, everything that we learned in there was taught me to be able to think wider. So I thoroughly recommend something like an MBA, but don't do it as soon as you've done your degree. Do it a few years afterwards once you've got a bit of experience under your belt because mm-hmm. then you've got something to compare it with. Yeah, sure. Um, and I also noticed that during your years of study, um, I think in school, um, and maybe during university, you were a member of clubs or societies called rifle clubs. And I wanted to ask you, are you like an avid hunter or shooter? Uh, because I know that uh, those types of sports and activities, I think, are historically and culturally popular in the UK. They are. I don't shoot animals. Um, <laughs> what, what I, when I was at school, so I was at a, a grammar school in, called the Royal Grammar School in Guildford, which is actually just down the road from where our office is now. Mm-hmm. Um, there they had um there's a thing called the ccf which is very popular in uk schools combined cadet force so it's combined army air force and soldiers and, um and navy sorry and um once a week you put your um uniform on um we were all doing army type stuff and then you'd march around pretending to be soldiers and then you could do things like shooting so target shooting so mm-hmm. We're very lucky in Surrey because the, the the world's most important and biggest shooting range is just down the road from us, a place called Bisley Ranges, and it's been there for 130 years. So it's all mm-hmm. Victorian buildings, and it's beautiful. It's never really changed. So we used to go there every Wednesday and every Saturday with school to shoot, and it's a very sociable sport. You know, you're all lying down together, shooting at big paper targets um, mm-hmm. three-quarters of a mile away, so it's quite a long distance, but with no telescopes or anything. So you're just learning to how to read the wind and um, stay very still, adjust for any 
environmental conditions that are changing and then you shoot um depending on what the the um the actual competition is you might shoot two sightings shots and then seven or two and then 10 to count and then you compete against each other and there's a big competition called the imperial um which is has about three thousand people attend once a year and i used to do that for years and years and years mm-hmm. and then when i left you when i left school and went to university i went to london university and a lot of people from my school went to london so at one point the whole london university rifle team were from my school <laughs> so, uh, we didn't really know whether we were shooting as the old guildfordians which was my school club or mm-hmm. um as the london school um as the london university team um but i carried on doing that for a number of years and i still do that a bit not not quite so much now because i'm quite busy but our my mm-hmm. the school team i was never that good but the the uh, role the um old guildfordians team is one of the best in the world now they win absolutely everything um but i haven't say i haven't shot in any of those teams i'm afraid i can't claim anything to do with their them being that good they are just amazing i think it helps the fact that the school is really near the ranges so they can go regularly to practice mm-hmm. well yeah because you need the facilities to to be able to do that right yes absolutely and am i understanding correctly that in this type of sport um when you are competing uh uh, with each other uh, you, you're you're basically scored on how accurate your shot is right from a specific distance so the farther it is uh, away from the what we call a bullseye um the less sort of the score that you get per shot or something like that am i correct that's right yeah so what it is is it's um if you're say you're, if you're shooting at the longest range that i used to shoot at which is a thousand yards wow. we still shoot in yards in, in the uk we don't use mm-hmm. meters for shooting so a thousand mm-hmm. yards, which is a very long way. You don't have any telescopic sights. You're just using the naked eye and you're, you've got metal sights. So you've got a ring at the end of the barrel and mm-hmm. then two rings at the bit nearer your head. You line all of them up and then you focus that on the center of the target. Now, the target looks pretty small. Uh, and if it's raining, it's very difficult to see because of the rain in the way. If it's windy or there's a heat haze, it'll move around in front of you because of the heat haze. And so you're lining all that up and you are trying you squeeze the trigger very gently because any any if you squeeze the trigger too hard, you'll move the gun because of the pressure on the on the trigger because they're very heavy triggers on these big guns. They're they're one or two kilograms you've got to pull rather than the short distance ones, which is might be one or two grams. So you've got to pull mm-hmm. pretty hard because this for mm-hmm. safety is the real reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it gets right in the middle, that's called a V bull. If it goes slightly out a bit more, then that's a bull. And if it's then out from that, you get an inner, and then it's a magpie, and then it's an outer on the outside, which you really don't want to get. I so see. Feeble is very close in the middle. Is is worth feeble is worth five point one, bulls worth five, inner's four, magpie's three, and outer's two. And if you miss, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. And so on and so on. Wow, so very interesting. Yeah. yeah, definitely very interesting. Um, you mentioned DJ, and this was one of my last questions of of the show, but I figured I'd ask you now. Um, I actually. I actually DJed myself uh, at the tail end of my uh, high school education. I, I started dabbling in, in vinyl records and uh, a mixer, <laughs> as they call it. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that's what these we have. Days. Um, and then that really progressed. To, like I went to college. I, I, I basically it was a hobby. It wasn't really like a career or anything. It was really a hobby to make some extra money on the weekends, uh, playing small clubs and, and bars in, in New York and where I went to, 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 uh, to college. Um, and, you know, things progressed from vinyl to CDs. And then we are now at the di- in the digital age, right, where everybody can be a DJ just by using their cell phone or, um, or a computer. But um, 
I guess what I wanted to say is be, because I had sort of this exposure to DJing and I played some whatever musical instruments um, also casually, you know, in school, um, today I have this very broad sort of interest in music, like extremely broad. Um, do you find that you have the same because, you know, early on in, in your life, you were exposed to all these different types of music and you played different types of music because I'm sure you had different crowds to please while you guys were performing. Um, sort of what are, uh, what are Tom's musical tastes these days? Absolutely. I mean, I'm an avid music lover and I go to, you know, lots of concerts a year when we haven't got lockdowns and things. You know, we might go to four or five. We go to festivals. We're going to a festival um, as a family in um, in Leeds, BBC Two Radio, Radio, Radio mm -hmm. Two Festival in Leeds in about a month's time or three weeks time, actually, um, which is all sort of 80s bands. So, yes, I do. I think if, if you said I had to tell you my favorite, um, it would be Pink Floyd um mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic music i've seen i've seen pink floyd play as pink floyd when i was a student they played uh -huh. in earl's court which is quite special um and then i've seen all of the individual people who are still alive playing together uh and i've been driven around a racetrack by nick mason in his ferrari once wow uh which wow. was which was incredible because there was a bit of a delay being able to go around the racetrack and so i got to sit in the car with him for an hour while they got it ready chatting to him about whether the Pink Floyd would get back together again, what he what he thought of Roger Waters, you know, and everyone, everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, it was absolutely fantastic. But I, I, when I did my disco, it was very much the time period was very much disco music. So, um, you know, like sort of Donna Summer and things like that. So real mm -hmm. proper dancey stuff. But we used to do a sort of bit of mixing together. Um, and so I remember mixing ACDC with Defov and things like that. So, yeah, I've got <laughs> quite a, and B-52s and things like that. So yep. I've got quite a broad knowledge and talking heads as well. Another another particular favorite, Kate Bush. Um, sure. Yeah, I like, I like lots of stuff. I, I really can't get my head around rap, though. I think I'm just the wrong generation. Uh, I was going to ask you. Like it. Uh-huh, yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> what about, like, um, what they call house music today? Or... Um, or um, yeah, like house music. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. My daughter told me, so we've got, say, four children, and our 17-year-old is probably more interested in music than the others. Uh -huh. And she's talking about liquid, liquid house. And I quite like that, actually, because that's sort of, you know, that's, that's sort of very, really good rhythm um, and sort of gets your feet going. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's that's okay. But she started, my, other, my elder daughter, who's 19, I took her to the Pink Floyd exhibition in London, which is called Their Mortal Remains at the, the V&A Museum. And she absolutely loved it because they had all of the equipment they used to make all of the albums, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, Animals, Wish You Were Here, all those ones. Mm -hmm. The actual equipment, the MOOC synthesizers and everything in there. And she was astonished at the entire, the whole process that you use to make music is so much more complicated than it is to some people where you sit in front of an Apple laptop and you just press buttons on it. Mm -hmm. They yep. then <laughs> had to work very hard to get those sound effects that they wanted to get. Um, so she liked seeing Pink Floyd. And then actually she came with me and my eldest son is 21 now um, to see Roger Waters in Hyde Park to see the Us and Them concert, which was outrageous. It was so good. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's awesome to sort of, you know, teach, not necessarily teach your kids, but expose them to all of this history in classical rock music. Because, I mean, you know, for me, I think Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, a lot of these legendary bands uh, will probably live on forever. They will be eternally popular by many, many 
generations of people, you know, long after you and I, are, um, I think, at, at, or at least uh, uh, I, I hope at this point. Yeah, what um, we used to do actually with our children when they were little, so when I'd read them bedtime stories, and we do, we have a nine-year-old now, we have a little one as well. Um, we do something called ME, which is musical education. So we'll read them a bedtime story and then I'll play them some sort of classic bit of mm-hmm. rock or some free or something like that, you know, uh, a free bird or something like that. Um just so that they can understand some some music as well. And I think that maybe that's why they've got such a sort of broad understanding of music too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I, I think including music in a, in a personal uh, educational curriculum or in school, I think is very important. I had that as a child growing up and definitely found it to be very, very um, enlightening and useful actually later on in life um, in terms of music playing a role. Um, so Definitely. Um, uh, uh, here's another thing I wanted to ask. Uh, I would argue that, uh, Tom Higgins might win the award for best dressed, uh, at the conferences that we normally attend. Um, and I, I'm sure you've gotten comments, uh, uh about, uh, about this and I'm, I hope they're, they're pleasant ones regarding sort of your, your clothing attire at conferences. I wanted to ask if the, if it's not too personal of a question, where did the passion for colorful clothing come from? Uh, I think it was being a rebel. So when I started <laughs> work, working in the city, I just could not wear a dark suit and white shirt. And so I'd sort of push it a bit and I'd wear a dark suit and I'd wear a flowery shirt. Or I'd start, I think I started with flowery ties and then moved on to flowery shirts and then moved on uh-huh. to brighter suits. And I just don't like conforming in any way. I mean, we have a sort of motto in our house that rules are to be broken. Um, so anything where, you know, I, I once turned up to Citibank in New York in a, in a purple suit uh, mm-hmm. and a flowery shirt and they thought an alien had landed. I, think. <laughs> I don't think they'd ever seen anyone not in a blue suit and a white shirt. Um, so yes, I, I'm, I love, I love wearing different things. And someone said to me once, I said, how, how do you do it? Is it, is it not just too embarrassing wearing something that's that bright? So we, mm-hmm. you just don't notice after a while. Um, so no, I, I love it. I mean, there is a change in my, I have my bright blue glasses I've had for years and years and years, but unfortunately my dog ate them on holiday Oh, and I can't get them anymore. So I've got, so you will see me in different glasses, different glasses at, at the trade show in Bangkok. Um, so we'll see whether, how well they go down, but you know, they, she completely consumed them. I found her chewing them on holiday, in, in Korea, oh. which is unfortunate. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 it's. I find it awkward that somebody's asking you whether it's embarrassing or not. I don't see anything embarrassing. I mean, we live in the twenty first century. We live in, <laughs> we live in, we live in free countries. We travel to free countries, you know, for for work and these conferences. I mean, we're we're all free to wear whatever we want. It's nothing. It's nothing exuberant or anything like that. It is colorful. I enjoy it, Tom. Personally, when I see you, I'm like, oh, that's Tom. I know that's Tom because. Because because of the um, because of the uh, because of the uh, attire. I mean, I've gotten comments about, oh, you're overdressed or something like that in a conference. And I said, you know, maybe it's a quintessential American saying, but, you know, dress for the job you want, (laughs) not the job you have, (laughs) you know, things like that. So, um, well, uh, that's that's certainly uh, that's certainly interesting. And I think, Tom, you should continue the tradition. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. If anybody gives you. Gives, I will continue. Gives you help for it. You send them my I'll way. Keep doing send them my way. <laughs> yeah. And so um, one of my last questions is you and I, uh, uh, again, we travel to all these conferences. Sometimes we're actually on the same plane. 
uh, believe it or not, we, we might not, we might not run into each other, but I might see you down a few rows or something like that. And, you know, I have sort of my uh, pet peeves or, or sort of my travel um, uh, sort of the ways I go about traveling, right. To make things comfortable for me. Um, and I think I saw from a distance that you're the same way. Can you share uh, a few of sort of your traveling life hacks or Tom's travel tips? Because, you know, you have a lot of experience traveling uh, internationally, especially probably long distances to places like Asia, the U.S., Australia, and things like that. How do you, um, you know, how do you sort of maintain focus during all these long trips so that you have enough time to rest? Uh, you ha- you can stay on top of your uh, work and other responsibilities you have, and then also be, you know, have the uh, conferences and your attendance and participation in these conferences yeah, it's, be, it's, be fruitful. I like the long plane journeys because it's very rare now you get a time when it's just you uh, on your own and you've got, you know, it depends mm-hmm. on my car, it's like eight hours, I think, on my own and I can, no one is going to disturb me. I never connect to the Wi-Fi on airplanes now that I have it because that's such a nice time where you just can't go and get disturbed. I don't, you know, there's always someone who's going to deal with anything that we've got going on in the office. I don't need to be that person because we've got as i say employing people better than me they will always deal with these sort of things um personally Mm -hmm. i like to listen to audible Mm -hmm. so i will download a few books um i sometimes watch films but not really um i don't tend to watch films on airplanes that much it's more audible uh, or read a book um because it's you can really get stuck into it um some nice champagne that's always nice they enjoy the food on the airplane you know if you if Mm -hmm. if if it's a, a longer flight and they they provide you alcohol very kindly, then I think you should uh, you should take them up on that. Um, if I'm attending nowadays, I tend to to speak or moderate at conferences rather than just attend um, because I'm I'm so mm-hmm. old that um, people ask me to do these sort of things. Um, oh, my, in fact, my nine year old son thinks he says, "When I was young, did we have dinosaurs as our pets?" Um, he thinks I'm that old. Um, I put a lot of preparation <laughs> into the panels that I'm doing if I'm moderating because I think it's really important to prepare beforehand so that you can give a really good panel so that the people who are listening are getting something out of it and brief all of the people that are on the panel that it's they're there to educate people they're not there to broadcast what they do they're there to give their expertise about whatever their skill is so i put a lot of expertise a lot of um, energy into uh, into um, making sure that the panel will run smoothly on time everybody's there everyone knows everyone else everyone knows what they're doing it's not always been the case there's been some i've done where people turn up they do a product pitch which is terrible um this is when i've been a speaker on a panel Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but now i'm a moderator i try much harder to make sure the people won't do that so it is there's a lot of preparation that goes into that that you don't necessarily see um if i'm doing something where i'm talking on camera or i'm talking on radio i will um mentally prepare beforehand but i will never ever write anything down that i'm going to talk about in detail it's all ideas it's all concepts that i mm. want to talk about because i find i can't remember anything sure. where i want to just read it off pat but if i'm just talking from my heart it flows so i always say to people who want to talk you know just mm-hmm. have an idea of where you want to get to and then have those ideas as points sort of sign points and talk around those ideas and then little sound what it is which is real and from the heart mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely 
I agree. Um, and uh, to, actually, this leads to my last question. Um, the fall conference season is actually uh, kicking off next week, like in, in full swing. Um, are you going to be hosting a panel at the IFX Expo, perhaps in Bangkok or any of the um, shows coming up? I think there's one in Dubai in October. Then there's the uh, London Summit. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm moderating well. a panel on technology trends in Bangkok. Um, which which very excited about that's going to be mm-hmm. a really, really good one because that's the first that's the first panel of the event so it's as, I think it's about uh, ten ten thirty or ten forty five in the morning so that's on the first day so that's really exciting London I'll be doing something but I don't know which one it is yet um, Dubai ha- haven't decided yet what we're doing about mm-hmm. that one and there are so many coming up um, on in the crypto world as well which are in parallel so we've done hedge week ones we've done new data ones there's lots of different ones we're doing there's a FT live coming up too so um, there are lots, and we've got to sort of decide um, how we spread ourselves across these things because they're quite time-consuming. So, yes, um, they're really important, and I do like mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question. So the flight to Bangkok, are yes. you flying directly yes. from London? Th- how long I is that flight? I think it's <laughs> eight, eight and a half or nine hours or something like that. Oh, so that's not as bad as it would be, let's say, because I looked it up from, you know, if I had to travel from New York. And it's yeah, the, the longest I've done is, is, uh, <laughs> is Sydney, um, which was 23 and a half hours of travel, uh-huh. which is a very very long trip and is it was that one long flight or yeah, they, they, they've only just over, started doing um non-stop flights to sydney from london you used to have to stop so i think i stopped in singapore for like an hour or something got off and got back on again which does make a difference mm-hmm. to stopping i like to stop and get mm-hmm. off and get on again it just breaks it up so it's two long flights rather than one very very long flight so i'm not sure i'd want to do the the um the really mm-hmm. non-stop sure. one i'm not sure what the benefit of that one extra hour saving is Makes sense. Well, uh, Tom, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us. I'm glad that I got to speak with you. Um, we wish you um, safe travels, actually, because the show is starting. Um, the, the first conference is next week. Um, we wish you the best of luck. And I personally hope to see you in London uh, because I hope to attend that conference in um, November. And perhaps also uh, sometime uh, soon we could do another podcast and discuss some other interesting that would be personal fantastic and thank you so much for spending the time talking to me it's been uh, it's been really enjoyable i loved it very much and um yeah looking forward to seeing you in london as well thank you yes thanks, thanks. bye cheers have a great day thanks for listening to our latest finance feeds podcast episode for sponsorship opportunities or to become a guest please email us at info at financefeeds.com